Today is the first day of this May 2021 two-day session. A core teaching in Buddhism is dependent co-arising, that no thing exists apart from anything else. Now this term, dependent co-arising, sounds kind of academic or abstract, but really it isn't. It's a dynamic process that is happening right now. It reveals itself in each moment, with each breath. Another term that's sometimes used for it, which sounds less abstract, is interbeing. To explore this teaching as it relates to our practice, I'll be using a couple of texts by Joanna Macy. And today I'll be reading from the first chapter of her book, World as Lover, World as Self, which was published in 1991. This book of hers is a collection of talks and essays in the context of the environmental crisis that our planet is experiencing. The, the first lines of the book are, our planet is in trouble. It is hard to go anywhere without being confronted by the wounding of our world, the tearing of the very fabric of life. And of course, you know, on top of climate change, we could add the pandemic that's going on uh, caused by a virus that um, was created due to human interaction with wild animals. Uh, we could add systemic racism, which has its own environmental impacts, including food deserts and, and water pollution. And then there's the inaction that arises from partisan politics and all the other ways we humans separate ourselves from one another and from the natural world. And it's in this vein that Macy's book, World as Lover, World as Self, explores dependent co-arising and I'm going to use that term because that's the one that she uses. First, let me say a little bit about who she is. She's a Buddhist scholar, ecologist, and activist, and her practice is rooted in the Theravada tradition. As an activist, she's known for what she calls the Great Turning Initiative, which she says uh, is a transformation from an industrial society to one that is more sustainable, recognizing that our survival is not separate from the survival of all other beings. Her ideas are greatly influenced by systems theory 
and deep ecology. Um, systems theory, in a nutshell, is the study of the interconnection and interdependence of all things, such that change to any one part affects the functioning of the whole. The classic example of systems theory is baking a cake. Consider all the ingredients that go into baking a cake. Flour, sugar, baking powder, eggs, vanilla extract, and, and so on. Now you take all these ingredients that you need to bake a cake and you put them on the kitchen counter. But let's say you have no idea what a cake is. You don't know what baked goods are. Well, that's kind of hard to believe. Um, but let's say you don't have a clue what, you know, what baked goods are. You've got these ingredients in, in front of you, but there's no way for you to imagine how combined and heated they would make a cake. And, and that's because no single ingredient or environmental factor such as heat would result in a cake on its own. From the vantage point of, of systems theory, the whole, the cake, cannot be reduced to its parts. The resulting product is far greater than that. And the same goes with deep ecology. It's based on the idea that the natural world is a complex web of relationships that form a whole. So um, if, harm, if there's harm to any one being, um, then it impacts an array of others. And an example of this is um, you might think of the web of relationships that results in, in the food that lands on our plate, seeds, pollinating bees, clouds, rain, the labor of farmers and farm workers, uh, all that goes into uh, food processing and distribution, grocery stores, cooks, and, and, and on and on. So deep, deep ecologists try to decenter humans and instead take a holistic view of the world, um, assigning intrinsic value to all life. So you, so you can see already how um, this aligns with, with Buddhist teachings. So now I'm going to read some excerpts from chapter one of World of Love or World of Self, where Macy calls on us to reflect on the world we live in and our, our relationship to it. She starts off by describing four ways that people on spiritual paths see or perceive the world. And this is what she says. These are not specific to any particular religion. You can find them in all spiritual traditions. These four ways are world as battlefield, world as trap, world as lover, and world as self. And then she says, by world, 
I mean the place we find ourselves in, the scene upon which we play out our lives. And in reading this chapter, I was really struck by how the four ways of seeing the world that she describes um, very much relate to how we develop in Zen practice, including some of the common hindrances we encounter along the way. So first, um, let's look at world as battlefield. She says, seeing the world as a battlefield is where good and evil are pitted against each other. And the forces of light battle the forces of darkness. Such a view is very good for arousing courage, summoning up the blood, using the fiery energies of anger, aversion, and militancy. It is very good, too, for giving us a sense of certainty. It is strong among monotheistic religions, and it is contagious. She, she also uses words like self-righteousness and fundamentalist to, to describe this worldview, where basically we carve up the world into us versus them, right and wrong. And, and she says it has a certain appeal and tenacity. You know, of course, we see this worldview not only in religion, but in politics. The world is against me. If only people could see the way, see things the way I do, then everything would be made right. So it can take the form of a righteous attitude about another person or group, thinking that I or we know better, are more aware or more knowledgeable than them. And you see this playing out right now with the COVID-19 vaccine. There's a lot of misinformation out there that has led some people to see the vaccine as part of some conspiracy. One myth is that it actually gives you the virus. And another that I've read about is that it contains a microchip that will enable Microsoft to track our whereabouts. Of course, that means everyone sitting here at Chapin Mill is being tracked right now. And uh, uh, actually, climate change denial is, is another example we hear these days. Uh, and uh, it was just yesterday, I just came up upon a New York Times article that speaks to the, this phenomenon. And I'm just going to read like a, a paragraph from it. And it's, it's titled, Belonging is Stronger Than Facts. The Age of Misinformation, and it's by Max Fisher. And yeah, there's a good summary paragraph here. He says, as much as we like to think of ourselves as rational beings who put truth-seeking above all else, 
We are social animals wired for survival. In times of perceived conflict or social change, we seek security in groups. And that makes us eager to consume information, true or not, that lets us see the world as a conflict, putting our righteous in-group against a nefarious out-group. This need can emerge especially out of a sense of social destabilization. As a result, misinformation is often prevalent among communities that feel destabilized by unwanted change, or in the case of some minorities, powerless in the face of dominant forces. There's definitely a lot of that going on uh, right now. Um, and yeah, you can see this sort of strong you know, identification and clinging to your group, your tribe. It's something that fires you up and you, makes you feel very connected to, to like-minded others, even as it separates you from everybody else. And unfortunately, you know, we have a practice that um, helps us to let go of uh, clinging to such things. Um, but still, lest we think we're immune to this us versus them mindset, um, it, it, is, it is a strong habit force in our society, and it could work its way into all sorts of contexts, including our relationship to practice. Um, one example is that we, we might be inclined to treat our practice as a weapon to overcome thoughts, the enemy. And it, it's something that folks who are new to practice can, can especially struggle with, but, but even veteran sitters can get caught up in it. And I, for one, struggled with it for years. When we do zazen, whether we're working on a, a breath or koan practice, if we're paying attention, we're going to notice our thoughts, including the, the habitual ones. And it's not uncommon to be really troubled by them, especially when we notice the same, same ones coming up over and over again. In Sashin, I used to get bothered by a certain song that would run through my head. And it, it wasn't the kind of thing where it was just happening during one Sashin. It was the same song happening across Sashins over and over and over again. It drove me nuts. I just wanted to turn it off, but I couldn't. And I'm not going to say what the song is, so as not to give you an earworm, but I'm sure many of you um, have had this experience as well. If not with the song, then with something, with something else. And so we might come to see such a thought, whatever form it takes, as, as a big obstacle that's in our way. If only I could get rid of it, then I'd make some progress. And then we develop this certain relationship to our thoughts. Again, seeing them as the enemy, 
that's preventing us from getting anywhere, which is another kind of thought. But really, when, when we see thoughts as our enemy, we're just using a thought, a judgment, to, to describe other thoughts. So we're just piling thoughts upon thoughts. And we cannot appreciate this on an intellectual level, but it's not always easy to catch ourselves when, when we're doing it. We just have to work at letting the thoughts be and accepting them as part of what makes us human. It's true, um, the capacity to think distinguishes us from other animals. We're hardwired to do it. We don't need to get rid of them. We just need to return our attention back to our practice over and over. And the thoughts take care of themselves. Sooner or later, they become a non-issue. Here's another way treating the world as a battlefield can enter into our, our relationship to practice. We might consider doing Sashin itself as a kind of battle. If not a battle over thoughts, then a battle over pain. And this was my experience as well. Before Sashin even starts, we might think about the pain that we expect to experience. My back is going to hurt. I know it. My hips, my knee. But in thinking about the pain, whether it's real or imagined, we get anxious and our body tenses up. And, and you know what that means, a tense body makes it all the more likely that we're going to feel pain while sitting. But as we gain more experience with practice and, and we come to trust it and relax into it, relax into the discomfort, we learn firsthand how keeping the focus on our practice helps us to avoid clinging to thoughts. And in turn, they no longer become the enemy, but rather we come to see them just as things are, just thoughts floating by. Um, it strikes me a, a timely analogy for this time of year might be weeding a garden or uh, taking care of a lawn. In the case of lawns, we Americans can get really obsessed about the appearance of our lawn. You know, God forbid there's a dandelion or some other kind of unwanted weed. I have family members, my father especially, who would be willing to spend a lot of time on, and money trying to have that perfect lawn. Just can't stand the sight of a dandelion, which by the way is an edible plant. 
But no matter how hard we try, the dandelions keep coming back. There's nothing inherently evil about a dandelion. It's all in our head. And if we let go of that, we no, we no longer see it as something undesirable. There's no issue to be resolved. Dandelions are just dandelions. And here at Chapin Mill, they're a source of food for the geese that hang out at the pond. And that is why you don't see many dandelions in the millhouse field. All right, let's turn to the next way of seeing the world that Macy describes. World is trap. She says, here the spiritual path is not to engage in struggle and vanquish a foe, but to disentangle ourselves and escape from this messy world. We try to extricate ourselves and ascend to a higher, supra-phenomenal plane. This view encourages contempt for the material plane, the, the body, in other words. Many of us on spiritual paths fall for this view. Wanting to affirm a transcendent reality distinct from a society that appears very materialistic, we place it on a supra-phenomenal level removed from confusion and suffering. The tranquility that spiritual practices provide, we imagine, belongs to a haven that is aloof from our world and to which we can ascend and be safe and serene. So you see this in a lot of popular culture representations of meditation. Images of people blissed out in some other headspace with not a care in the world. And in Zen practice, there's a risk of using Zazen in this way. Before we learn about what's involved in taking up a sitting practice, our goal might be to free ourselves from from stress and anxiety that we experience in our jobs, in relationships, our family, the pandemic, and so on. But then when we actually spend some time sitting regularly, um, we see that it, it's not blissful at all. It, it involves quite a lot of effort to concentrate the mind. And on top of that, we're confronted by all sorts of stuff that bubbles up. Memories, fantasies, cravings. And then there's this other way that world is trap filters into our relationship to practice. And that's when we get attached to the idea of enlightenment. And this is something we all confront. How do we pour our energy into the koan or into the breath without grasping, without trying to get something 
And that grasping can really happen in subtle ways that we're not aware of. And that includes attempting to control the conditions that we're in, to make things just so, presumably to better our chances. But when we make awakening into this, this special place that we need to get to, that's removed from who we are in this body, in the here and now, removed from the world of change, when we do that, we're, we're really just looking for the exit sign. We're trying to ex escape rather than be becoming one with our practice and with the conditions that we're in right now. There's a koan in the Mumun Khan that um, gets at this uh, impulse we have to get out of unpleasant conditions. It's number 43, Tozan's No Cold or Heat. And it goes like this. A monk asked Tozan, when cold and heat come, how can we avoid them? Tozan said, why don't you go where there is no cold and no heat? The monk said, where is the place where there is no cold and no heat? And then Tozan said, when cold let the cold kill you. When hot, let the heat kill you. This place where there's no cold or heat, it's not separate from us. It's not even a place. Macy go, goes on to uh, point out just how absurd it is, how crazy it is that we try to break free from the conditions that we're in to find some, what we imagine to be more perfect, tranquil reality. She says what we're, what we're doing when we do that is escaping from that which we're dependent on our very body, the body that we're in. She writes, we still have bodies and are dependent on them, however advanced we may be on the spiritual path. Trying to escape from something that we are dependent on breeds a love-hate relationship with it. This love-hate relationship with matter permeates our culture and inflames a twofold desire to destroy and to possess. These two impulses, craving and aversion, inflame each other in a kind of vicious cycle. Yeah, how can we get out of or be anything other than who we already are? Everything there is, is right here. Just this one. 
when, when we misconstrue practice as an escape or, or use it as a, a kind of coping mechanism, we just miss the point. When doing Zazen, while on the one hand, yeah, it can enhance our day-to-day lives, we can, it can make us feel less stressed, lighter, more connected to those around us. At the same time, the reason why we're working on ourselves, the reason why we're doing this practice is to awaken to our true nature to experience what the, for ourselves, what, what the historical Buddha had experienced. And again, we, we do that by becoming one with our practice and with whatever conditions we're in, not fleeing from or rejecting anything. As we just recited in Master Hakuin's chant in praise of Zazen, we say, this very body is the body of Buddha. All there is is this one body. And this body is also beyond the mass of cells that we happen to occupy. And that brings us to the third worldview that Macy describes. And that's world as lover. And and now we turn toward the heart of Zen practice. Here's what she says about world as lover. It is my experience that the world itself has a role to play in our liberation. Its very pressures, pains, and risks can wake us up release us from the bonds of ego and guide us home to our vast true nature. For some of us, our world, our love for the world is so passionate that we cannot ask it to wait until we are enlightened. Instead of a stage set for our moral battles or a prison escape, the world is beheld as a most intimate and gratifying partner. When you see the world as lover, every being, every phenomenon can become an expression of that ongoing erotic impulse. It takes form right now in each one of us and in everyone and everything we encounter. The bus driver, the clerk at the checkout counter, the leaping squirrel. What she's saying when she says we can see everything as an expression of that ongoing erotic impulse, she's she's urging us to see the lover in each and every being and thing. The cushion that we're sitting on, the person sitting next to us, the wood floor, and to fall in love, not just with each thing in itself, but the whole, the entire universe. And that includes ourselves, this very body. 
with all its aches and pains, anxieties, frustrations, also beauty and joy. Loving it unconditionally, just as it is. Sounds pretty simple, but in our con consumer culture, loving ourselves is a real challenge. We're socially conditioned, for example, to hate our bodies. We're told that we're too short, too tall, too fat, too thin. We need to smile more. We need to fill in the blank. And all that can leave us feeling deficient and unworthy in measuring up to what is ultimately an imaginary standard. And I find it amazing that even as mature adults, when we get to the point in our life when we're not so self-conscious as we were in our younger years, we continue to face this unwillingness to truly love ourselves, to take care of our own body, and extend the same compassion that we would direct toward others to ourselves. And it's, it's also a habitual way of thinking that enters into our practice. It's there when we disparage ourselves. I can't do this practice. I can't keep my concentration. What am I doing? There I go again. What's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong. It's just in that moment, we're ensnared in a bunch of thoughts. When we, when we find a way to love ourselves, which by the way involves also falling in love with our practice so much that we return to it over and over, then, then we get better at cutting through all that bunk. Macy's uh, world as lover also reminds me of how from time to time during Sashin, Roshi, in his encouragement talks, would uh, tell us that we, we need to make love with whatever practice we're working on. Make love with mu, hu, or the breath. And, and this speaks to how, how deeply intimate and personal practice is. It can be a real turning point when we start to feel our practice in our body being the breath, being the koan, merging with it. And when we practice this way, we're practicing with love. We're committing to going beyond dualism. And, and love in, in its purest form is, is not a matter of possession, as in wanting to get something in return but it's a matter of giving, giving all our attention, 
over and over. And, and we just need to do it one moment at a time. Show up for our practice. Have the presence of mind to give it our constant care. There's a, a French philosopher named Simone Weil, and she once said this about attention. Attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. So we can also say it's a form of love. I think of a, a mother bird sitting on the eggs in her nest. When she's sitting on her eggs, all of her attention goes to keeping those eggs warm. She rarely leaves the nest. And when she does, she's not gone very long. And it's interesting how love can enter into our everyday activities as well. Drink, like drinking a glass of water. Now there's just the drinking of the water, just the experience of it. And, and it can actually have, if our attention is there, it can actually have a quality of warmth and tenderness to it. But we gotta be paying attention. When we, when we return to our practice over and over like that, we're following through on our commitment, staying true to our love, and, 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 and then, then we begin to experience the fruits of our efforts. With that, let's turn to the fourth way of seeing the world. World is self. And world is self, you'll see, dovetails with world is lover. Here's what Macy says about world is self. Just as lovers seek for union, we are apt when we fall in love with our world to fall into oneness with it as well. Hunger for this union springs from a deep knowing to which mystics of all traditions give voice. And then she cites a, a mystic of uh, a Western tradition. Uh, her name is Hildegard of Bingen, who I had to look it up. She's a 12th century Benedictine nun and musical composer who uh, reportedly had extraordinary visions of God. And when, and this is Macy, she says, when Hildegard of Bingen experienced unity with 
the divine, she gave it these words. I am the breeze that natures all things green. I am the rain coming from the dew that causes the grass to laugh with the joy of life. And in reading that, it uh, reminds me of a famous line by Dogen, which probably many of you have heard as well. You think that your mind is thoughts and concepts, but it, it is really trees and grasses and pebbles and tiles. And Macy goes on to describe this one self. She says, that center, that one self, is in you and me and the tree outside the door. Similarly, the jeweled net of Indra, the vision of reality that arose with Huayan Buddhism, revealed a world where each being, each gem, at each node of the net, is illumined by all others and reflected in them. As part of this world, you contain the whole of it. In uh, Buddhist mythology, Indra's net is used to symbolize interbeing. And Indra is a god that takes the form of a vast net that stretches infinitely in all directions. Each eye of the net is a single bright jewel, and each jewel reflects every other jewel which are infinite in number because each reflected jewel bears an image of all the other jewels. So, in other words, whatever affects one jewel affects them all. Everything contains everything else. And this is confirmed by science as well. The stuff that makes up our bodies is no different than the stuff that forms the universe. The main chemicals of the universe are hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, and nitrogen. And those are the same elements that make up life on Earth. So literally, we are the universe, and the universe is us. Macy then goes on to distinguish how our, our true self is different from the ordinary way we think of self. Our true self is beyond all words, labels, and categories that we might use to describe our individuality or identity. So that means beyond the, the experience of being in a body of a certain age, gender, sexual orientation, race, nationality, ethnicity, and so on. All the attributes we might associate with ourselves. Now these aspects of ourselves, these qualities are important. They help us to express ourselves and navigate the social world. That's the world of relativity. But in the absolute sense, our true self cannot be defined or contained. Macy writes, the way we define and delimit the self is arbitrary. We can place it between our ears and have it looking out from our eyes or we can widen to include the air we breathe 
or at other moments, we can cast its boundaries further to include the oxygen-giving trees and plankton, our external lungs, and beyond them, the web of life which they are sustained, or, or the web of life in which they are sustained. I used to think that I ended with my skin, that everything within the skin was me and everything outside the skin was not. But now you've read these words and the concepts they represent are reaching your cortex. So the process that is me now extends as far as you. And where for that matter did this process begin? So our true self is not, not a static entity, it's a process. As Roshi often says, there's no little person in here. We're not the same person we were a second ago, any more than we were the person we were a year ago. Then Macy continues, I can certainly trace it, this, this is this true self, I can certainly trace it to my teachers, some of whom I've never met, and to my husband and children who give me courage and support to do the work I do, and to the plant and animal beings who sustain my body. What I am, as systems theorists have helped me to see, is a flow-through. I am a flow-through of matter, energy, and information, which is transformed in turn by my experiences and intentions. To experience the world as an extended self and its story as our own extended story involves no surrender or eclipse of our individuality. The liver, leg and lung that are mine are highly distinct from each other. Thank goodness. And each has a distinctive role to play. Each thing has its own intrinsic worth and relates to everything else in function and position. That's a line from one of our chants, the harmony of relative and absolute. From an anthropological perspective, Macy then says that this larger self, this self as world, can be seen as part of the evolution of human consciousness. And then she gets into describing what she calls three movements of unfolding consciousness. She says, in the first movement, our, inf our infancy as a species, we felt no separation from the natural world around us. Trees, rocks, and plants surrounded us with living presence and intimate and pulsing. 
They were as intimate and pulsing as our own bodies. Then self-consciousness arose and gave us distance on our world. This is the, the second movement of consciousness. She says, we needed that distance in order to make decisions and strategies, in order to measure, judge, and to monitor our judgments. The distanced and observing eye brought us science and a priceless view of the vast orderly intricacy of our world. The recognition of our individuality brought us trial by jury in the Bill of Rights. Again, the thinking mind has its place. And then Macy says, now harvesting these gains, we are ready to return. The third movement begins. Having gained distance and sophistication of perception, we can turn and recognize who we have been all along. Now it can dawn on us. We are our world knowing itself. We can relinquish our separateness. We can come home again. You might say, we can wake up. Then Macy ends the chapter by reciting a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's titled, The Old Mendicant. And she says, this poem evokes the long, wondrous, wondrous evolutionary journey we all have made together, from which we are as inseparable as from our own selves. At the same time, it is a love song. And uh, a mendicant, by the way, is a beggar, one who relies solely on alms to survive. And here's the poem. Being rock, being gas, being mist, being mind. Being the mesons traveling among galaxies with the speed of light. You have come here, my beloved one. You have manifested yourself as trees, as grass, as butterflies, as single-celled beings, and as chrysanthemums. But the eyes with which you looked at me this morning tell me you have never died. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. <laughs>